This audio recording is presented by New City in downtown Orlando. Uh, please remain standing for this morning's scripture reading, uh, which is Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 3. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. This is God's word. Amen. Please be seated. I know after last week's marathon scripture reading, you're a little disappointed after that one. Uh, But it's just one commandment. It's the first commandment. And you know, there's a reason we'll find out why it's the first commandment. Uh, In a sense, all things flow from this because in the first commandment, we're taught about the object of our true worship, the object that we are called to serve and bow down to. But before we get into that, I want to give a quick recap uh, from last week. Last week, uh, if you missed it, I'm sorry, we actually read from two Disney songs, one in the 90s and then, of course, Frozen, because you have to read from Frozen uh, if you're going to read the lyrics of a Disney song nowadays. But what we pointed to was the fact that we in our culture have a very interesting relationship uh, with the word and idea of freedom. We really believe in our culture that in order to truly be free, we must be free from all external obligations. In other words, all restrictions from outside of us must be removed if we have any chance of being free. And we saw that in the 90s in the movie Pocahontas, Pocahontas, the way they tell the story was wrestling with this reality of there's this new world. And I don't know if the world I used to belong to or if I belong to this new world. I'm trying to figure out my identity. I'm trying to figure out which is right. But then in the chorus, she has some confusion. She recognizes there are voices from outside of her that might be helpful. She's just not sure which one to listen to. Then we fast forwarded uh, to Elsa uh, in the anthem of self-authorship, the anthem of our day, where she says, uh, I don't care what they're going to say, right? There's no right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. You see, in that small snippet of the song, Let It Go, it really is an anthem to the way our culture understands freedom and the relationship between freedom and external restraints. But we said last week that freedom is not found in the absence of restraints, but it's actually found in embracing the proper restraints. Just like a fish in water, no one would say that it's oppressive to put a fish in water because a fish is set free from the water. Just like I said uh, to my three-week-old, a swaddle is not oppressive. To you, it's a straitjacket, but it's not designed for you, right? To her, it is a recreation of the womb and it's freedom for her. It allows her to sleep without waking herself up, right? Because it's designed for her. So it's the proper restrictions that actually lead us to freedom. It's not simply that there be restrictions. Now, one of the things that we didn't go to last week, but shows up this week, is what is an implication of the assumption that if I'm free from all constraints, I can sort of make my own reality. I can make my own good life. And it's the assumption that along with the absence of restraints, there must be a proliferation of choice. In other words, I have to have lots of choice in order to be free. So if, 
if, if, it's, if it's true to say in our modern day assumption that the lack of restriction is thought to give us freedom, we also would say the presence of multiple choice, not like on an exam, but, but more than one choice, lots of choices would equal freedom. But, you know, it's interesting because this is turning out not to be true. I mean, study after study is showing this. Uh, any article, lots of articles that you would read in newspapers all around the land would tell you that this is not so readily received as true anymore. And to pick one example of where this is not true is career choice, right? For any of us, but especially for uh, the younger crowd, and I would put myself in that. There is this, there is this belief that um, because I've been told and many of us have been told for our whole lives that we can do anything we want to do, that freedom must mean we should have the choice to be able to make of ourselves whatever we want to make. Now, of course, I don't think any of us want us to go back to a day and age where if my father was a farmer, that means I'm a farmer simply because he's a farmer. Or if my, farmer's a, my father's a blacksmith, I'm a blacksmith simply because he's a blacksmith. So industrialization and lots of things have brought good benefits where all of us get to use our gifts and express our uh, individuality uh, for the good of our neighbor. At least that's what it's supposed to be for, for the good of our neighbor. And things get better and uh, economies grow and God uses all types of those things. So that is a good thing. But the commitment to me being able to define my very identity by what I do and therefore what I choose to do, which means I get to make myself, uh, that actually leads to a lot of paralyzing fear for a lot of people. Because you see, what if you choose the wrong you? What if you choose the wrong thing? What if you go the wrong route? Now, this has uh, confused many of people in youth groups and people who've grown, grown up in youth groups in the last 20, 30 years. But it, it is this commitment to choice. But in the understanding of wanting to make the right choice, I think this is what is true, okay? It's true that the desire to make the right choice is because we have a desire to live wholeheartedly for, for something, Right? We want to give ourselves completely to something. And, and we really want it to be uh, that what we give ourselves to leads us into flourishing and leads us to be able to bless others and love our neighbors and contribute to society. Right? On our best days, that's what we want to happen. But you see, we understand that it's the right choice that will lead to freedom because the right choice means I say no to a lot of other things. And then when I say no to other things, I actually have now the freedom to be undivided in living for that one thing. And you see, that's what the first commandment is all about. You see, we see in the scriptures that the undivided heart is the key to the liberated life. At the center of our undivided heart has to be the first commandment. This has to be the first choice that we make or all other choices uh, ultimately will not lead to joy, happiness, fulfillment, or even blessing our neighbor. This is the first choice we must make, is to embrace, seek to embody, and to live out the first commandment. Now, I'm gonna make three observations, just so you know, the first one is the steepest climb, and after that, it's downhill. So, just so you know, in terms of pacing, when I'm done with the first point, I don't want you to be like, oh my gosh, how long are we gonna be here? All right, so this is the steepest climb. After that, it's downhill, okay? So the first observation I wanna make 
about this idea of choice in the first commandment is simply this. What is the choice of the liberated life? All right? Now, at the, at the center of the first commandment is uh, loyalty. It's loyalty, love. And really, loyalty, love is at the center of the believer's relationship with God. And really, it's at the center of any meaningful relationship, isn't it? Loyalty. To be true to that relationship. And uh, in the first commandment, we, this is worship language, right? Have no other gods before me. So this is worship language. And in the first commandment, we see the object of our worship is to be the one true God, right? Now, the phrase no other is actually twice in songs that we sang, no other. And we see it here, no other. And it's a crucial phrase because if you say no other, it means that you're choosing one person. And in this case, it's to choose Yahweh and it's to forsake all others. I remember when I... Uh, was asking my wife, now wife to marry me, uh, I told her I loved her and I explained to her what love meant. And then I told her, if, we say, if I say yes to you by choosing you, I have said no to all other women. Now, in many, in many vows that we make, even today in the church, we say that, forsaking all others. We use the language like, only unto you. So you see, at the center of, of a loving relationship is loyalty. And in the Ten Commandments, we see that it's absolutely true that God chose us first, all right? So it's not us earning in any way. I'm gonna say this every week. The Ten Commandments have nothing to do with us earning anything because in the prologue, we see God has already made his people his people. And now he's just telling them how to stay free, how to stay liberated, how to live the liberated life. And so, uh, but once God calls us, he then requires that we respond in a certain way. We respond, in this case, in wholehearted worship. We see the importance of this in Joshua 24. Now, I know many of you are like, what's in Joshua 24? I promise you, you'll know when I get to one verse because it's like a bumper sticker verse or a refrigerator verse is what I call them. You sort of pull the verse out, out of its context, right? So I'm gonna put it back in its context and you'll know the verse when you hear it. But in Joshua 24, what you have is you have Joshua who's continuing to lead God's people into the promised land. He reminds them of all that God has done. He said, remember, God brought you out of Egypt. Remember, God has protected you and fought for you in all of these battles. Remember that, that food that you just ate and the wine that you drank? All of that was the fruit of someone else's labor and I gave it to you. I didn't even make you work for it. He reminds them of all of these things. And then he says this, he's doing a covenant renewal ceremony at Shechem. He's reminding them of God's covenant with them. And he says this, now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your father served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, and by that what he means is if it's unappealing, if you'd rather serve other gods, you better figure that out now. He says, and if it's evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve. Here it is, the refrigerator verse. Whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, choose. Where's your affection? What are you committed? Who are you committed to? Who are you gonna forsake? The Lord or the, or the false gods? And he says, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. 
Now, of course, the commandment means that they're not supposed to worship Moloch anymore or Baal, right? Or Zeus or whoever, like name any God later on, right? You know, and we're used to reading this commandment as though the main focus is merely worshiping other gods with names, right? But we have to understand that it's more than that. And for every commandment, there's a narrow application. In this case, the narrow application is don't worship Baal by his name. But there's a broad application as well to every commandment. And the broad application to this commandment is that this commandment forbids any competition at all with the true God for three things. Any competition for our allegiance, our obedience, and our affection. That's how John Frame, who's a theologian, defines covenant love. And I would challenge you, how else would you define it? What three words would you use to describe the response of love in the first commandment? I think it's beautiful that it is allegiance, obedience, and love. I'm sorry, and affection. And that summarizes love in the first commandment. So the reality is, all of us can serve a lot of gods, even if they're not so-called gods. Right, the Bible's clear about this. A man's strength can be his God in Habakkuk 1. Right? His strength, you could say his power. In Job 31, Job says, you can say to gold, be my confidence. Can you imagine that? Looking at your bank account. Now, you would never do that, would you? Not like that. Jesus says money can be called mammon. So he actually gives it a name as though it were a God. And he says, you can't serve two gods. Paul says in Philippians 3, we can make our stomach our God. And Paul also says, covetousness is explicitly idolatry or false worship of another God. And we could go on seemingly forever, couldn't we? Coming up with ways that we turn good things into God things, as it said. Good things in creation, we make them ultimate things and we bow down to them and we serve them. In our day and age right now, one of the biggest ones is eroticism, right? Sexual freedom is the God. It has been for a while. It's increasing. Also, the desire for power. Think in an election season, right? The desire for power. Even the reason, the gift of reason can be absolutized. Uh, Tradition can be absolutized. Anything can be absolutized. Anything can be made something that we bow down to. Now, and, and helping me think about this, right? Because right now, it, it, I can imagine it stayed up here, right? It stayed at a cognitive level, which is important. It's absolutely important that we understand this. We have to understand what is a God. We have to understand what is the first commandment. But you see, my two favorite resources on the commandments both understand that the commandments are about what you love. It's not just about what you do. It's about the type of person you are that would cause you to do what you do. Because whatever you love shapes you into being a certain type of person. And you will be true eventually to who you really are. Now those resources, you can find them free online and I would recommend reading through them. One is the Westminster Larger Catechism and the other one is Martin Luther's Longer Catechism uh, in the Book of Concord. They're both online for free. I'd recommend these resources. They both teach that the commandments are a matter of our heart. They're a matter of our deepest longing. And I wanna read to you Martin Luther's answer to the question, what does it mean to have a God? Listen to this. A God means that from which we are to expect all good 
into which we are to take refuge in in all distress. So that to have a God is nothing else than to trust and to believe in him from the whole heart. He says, as I have often said, that if the confidence and faith and trust be in the right thing, then your God is true. And a God is upon which you set your heart and put your trust in. That thing properly is your God. Whatever you lack of good things, expect it of me, a God says. And look to me, a God says. And whenever you suffer misfortune and distress, creep and cling to me because I, yes, I will give you enough and help you out of every need. Only let not your heart cleave to or rest in any other. Now, that's a beautiful thing if what we worship is the true God. But if we're worshiping other things, it's an obscene thing. It's shocking. It, it almost makes you want to throw up in your mouth. I mean, just, let's, just, let's just fill in the blank with a couple of things I already said earlier, right? Let's imagine that your competence is your God. You will sacrifice everything to be seen as competent. You will sacrifice everything and you will hide when you fail. You will blame others. You will shift blame. You will bow up and be angry when anyone sees that you're not as competent as you think you are. And if God is your competence, then whenever you lack good things, you expect it. You say, oh, competence. You look to competence and you say, I'm suffering misfortune and distress. I'm gonna creep and cling to my confidence. Yes, I know you alone are enough and you will help me with every need and I will have my heart cleave and rest only in you. Or what if it's, what if it's money or success? You say, my whole heart is given to you. My confidence and faith and trust be in you. What, what, what when something goes wrong? What, what do you say to yourself when you say, well, at least I have? What do you put there? Something's terribly wrong. You're sick. Someone you love is sick. You get the phone call that says, you need to come to the hospital right now. We'll tell you more when you get here. When you look out, when you look out at it, it's just a crazy um, election cycle, wherever you fall, right? Wherever you fall. And you look at polls or you look at whatever and you say, well, whatever happens, at least I have blank. That will bring me security. Uh, that will bring me happiness. That will bring me joy. Where do you go in distress? Where do you go to soothe yourself? Where do you escape to? What do you seek for life? But if it's the true God, how beautiful is this? When the true God, not money, not success, not competence, not status, not comfort, not control, not power, but when the true God fills in that blank, the true God says to you, Whatever you lack of good things expected of me, and look to me, and whenever you suffer misfortune and distress, creep. Because when you suffer misfortune and distress, sometimes that's all we can do is creep and crawl and cling to me. And I, yes, I will give you enough and help you out of every need. Only let not your heart cleave to or rest in any other. That's the heart of the first commandment. You shall have no other gods 
before me. And the Westminster Larger Catechism, I just imagine, if you go read that later, it's like they sat around in a room and they said, let's think of every single example of how you could break the first commandment and list it. And they did. And it's really long. And it could be seen as over the top, but they do give scripture references, which is helpful. Uh, But one of the things that I read and was reminded of is this. They point out in the Westminster Larger Catechism under what is required of us in the first commandment, they say that lukewarmness is a violation of the first commandment. Think about that. If, If the commandment requires our obedience, our affection, and our allegiance, lukewarmness would be a violation of the first commandment. And this is why. Because to the extent that we are lukewarm in our attitude and heart towards God, we are putting other things ahead of him. So you see, we all have a lot to repent of in the first commandment and a lot of longing and shaping uh, to be had in us. So to choose the liberated life is to choose the one and true God, the only true liberator, the only one who can be your good and to stick with your choice. It's like marriage. No third party should come in between this relationship. This is what he's saying. Freedom is found in me and me alone. That is uh, the first commandment. Now, uh, going downhill, we've, we've made our trek. We, I hope we understand the heart a little more of the first commandment. And hopefully the Holy Spirit has brought some things to our minds of how we personally need to repent and turn back and how we've submitted ourselves to slavery by choosing other gods, being lukewarm. But I wanna mention three uh, challenges, I think, to the liberated life. I know on the screen I sent them, I said the challenge to the liberated life, but I ended up coming up with three. So these will be short, but these are three rival stories to the story that says, I am the Lord God who brought you out of Egypt. I know what's best for you. I freed you because I want you. You're the apple of my eye. You're my treasured possession. I'm gonna sacrifice for you. I'm gonna die for you. I'm gonna pursue you. I'm never gonna let you go. That's the story of the saving God. But there are some rival stories, and I just wanna clip through three of them. The first one is the story of consumerism, okay? You have to know consumerism functions like a God in our world, right? It does. It, it, has, it, is a, it is a fine thing, a good thing to consume, right? It's not bad. Consumption itself is not wrong. But consumerism is the story. It trains us to believe that consumption is the way to a happy, fulfilled, and flourishing life. More, more, more leads to happiness, That is the God of consumerism. Now, uh, who are the prophets and what is the evangelistic tool of consumerism? Well, it's marketing. Now, before you freak out, marketing also is not necessarily wrong either. We all market. Every time we, we say anything that we like, we're marketing in a sense. But when marketing as evangelism tells the story that of consumerism, of the fact that you won't be happy until you have this. That is the story of consumerism. You know, and uh, when it tries to tell you a story that without this product, you can't live the good life, that is the consumeristic gospel. And gospel is not too strong because even when you read literature uh, in psychology of marketing, they, they study cults. It is one of the fundamental things that they do. They study cults and find out how you gather a following and uh, they use the word evangelism. And so they study evangelists and appeals to the will and to the heart and all of these things. 
very unashamedly. So gospel is not too strong of a word. Because you see, what, what happens in consumerism is that it impresses upon us a deep sense of lack, right? It tells the four stories we just went through. This is how things ought to be. You should be awesome. You should be beautiful. You should be perfect. You should have status. You should drive a luxury car, whatever it is. It tells the story how things ought to be, and then it shows you how much you lack without even words, just music and pictures and beautiful people and beer. And it shows you what you're lacking, right? This is what you lack. You have this deep sense of need. And then it instills in us what that answer is. Here's the gospel. Buy this product. Consumerism is one of the biggest rival stories to the, uh, obeying the first commandment in our day and age. The second one is individualism, all right? They're twins, but individualism tells the story that you will only be happy and liberated if you act from self-interest and if you're self-absorbed. Now, we would never say that, right? Because that's not a good sales pitch, so we don't use that language. But rather, uh, we, we're trained over time to make our center of gravity in ourself, ourself, right? We are the center of everything. So the only moral compass we have is, will this make me happy? And will it hurt anybody else? Those are not bad questions, I guess, but if those are the only questions you ask yourself, that is a shriveled, muted life. But individualism says it's the gospel. And what happens is that for us, if that's true, which it is, all of us are being shaped by images and stories and pictures and movies and music and marketing that says that you are the center of the universe, then what the gospel's gift to you is to displace you from that, to relieve you from the burden of being your own God, to relieve you from the torture and prison of having to perform all the time, to having to be utterly wise. It removes your hope from yourself. That's what the gospel does to individualism. I love the Heidelberg Catechism question one. It's famous. It asks, what is your only comfort in life and in death. How would you answer that question? What is your only comfort? Your only comfort, right? You hear this only language. We're getting to worship again, aren't we? What is your only comfort? What fills in the blank? At least I have. How would you answer that? Well, this is how they answer it. It's not how I would have answered it. And frankly, I don't, I don't well, it's not how I would answer it. This is their answer. What is your only comfort in life and in death? That I am not my own. Wow, that I am not my own. That's how it starts. That I am not my own, but belong, and we all want to belong, don't we? Deeply need to belong. But belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Why? Because he has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free, here's freedom, from all the power of the devil who would lie to you. I might add. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. You see, the first commandment, to be displaced from the center of my life is the way to freedom. It's the way to battle individualism. It's the way to battle consumerism. You see, we don't have the gravitas 
We don't have the weightiness to hold that position. Only our creator and redeemer does. It's like the sun in our solar system, as I've said before. You move the sun out of the center of our solar system, stuff starts flying everywhere. But if you keep the sun with its gravitas in the center, everything else goes in its proper orbit. And it's the same in your heart. It's the same in your desires. It's the same in my desires. So individualism, now secularism, last one. Secularism. Many of you and us, we think we don't struggle with that, right? We're Christians. Not so. Not so. John Frame, again, uh, who's very helpful to me, he even says that he believes secularism provides the greatest challenge to Christians who seek to live by the first commandment. And I would say it's true. Absolutely. Uh, and we could even argue that consumerism and individualism find their, their, their children of secularism. And this is why. Philosopher Charles Taylor describes a secular age as this. Right? Many people think a secular age is, oh, well, they just don't believe in God anymore. But that's not actually what secular, the secular age is. This is a secular age. A secular age is a society where belief in God, I'm sorry, a secular age. Uh, um, okay, I must have missed a line from this quote. So now I'm going to summarize. All right. So what Charles Taylor says is, before the secular age, the belief in God was undisputed. Right? It was undisputed. No, nobody really threatened it. It was just the weirdos, the wackos who could understand and have meaning in life apart from God. It was unchallenged and unproblematic. But now, in a, in a secular age, belief in God is challenged and is problematic, and it's only one among other options. And most of the time, secularism is the easiest story to embrace. So the story of secularism tries to tell a story where we can live a free, meaningful, liberated life apart from any transcendence, apart from any God. You can be free. If you just forget about transcendence, if you just, for, if you just forget about all that, you can actually be free. And then it tells a story of, oh, where did life come from? Oh, we don't know, but don't worry about that. Maybe aliens shot a missile onto earth and started it. You don't think that's true? That's published in journals, okay? It's true. But even from there, it gets a little more believable, frankly. Well, assuming that, then maybe the reason that I have bad desires is just because my bad genes haven't been weeded out of me. And it just weaves this whole story of how I can find meaning in the world apart from transcendence. And it separates the creator from created things. But the problem is, is that we can't live like this. And if you find one Mecca, okay, if the mall is the Mecca and shrine of consumerism, then the university has to be that for secularism, okay? Now, but even more than the classroom, you know where I see transcendence the most? The football field. It's football season, right? See, I'm from Indiana. We don't care about football, <laughs> especially college football. There are reasons for that. We're never good. Even Notre Dame lets us down. But in all seriousness, think about this. Where do you see a picture of transcendence? Where do you see a picture of belonging? Where do you see a picture of overcoming, of meaning, of life, of vitality? Is it not in sports? The worshiping of sports. 
It goes all the way down now to our littlest of kids. You see, in a secular age, we have to find meaning. And we realize that meaning has to be attached to some sense of transcendence. And the closest that a secular age oftentimes can get is in things like sports. Because think about it. It brings community together. It brings hard work together. It brings a lot of beautiful things together. But the problem is, is it absolutizes a good thing. It makes a good thing a God thing. And so alas, consumerism doesn't cut it. Individualism doesn't cut it. Even secularism won't cut it. The utopia without God in the university will not cut it. So last, what is the call to a liberated life? Because all those things I just mentioned are calling you to a liberated life. Consumerism's calling you. Individualism's calling you. Secularism is calling you. It's all calling us. It's telling us a story of what will give us life and meaning. But the true story is also calling you. But here's the difference. Listen to this. Here's the difference. Is that the true story of the liberated life, the first commandment, is actually a call to a person. Don't miss that. It's a call to a person. It's a call to a relationship with your creator and your redeemer. And the prologue that we read this morning, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, it tells us that to be free from idols, you must not simply believe in God, you must live with God. We will never be set free from our idols unless we live with God, unless we walk with God. That's why in the New Testament, we give this picture of walking, of following, of responding to a call to walk with Jesus. See, this morning, if we wanna be set free, we have to respond to the call to walk and live with God. And, and so therefore, at the heart of the, of the first commandment is that to love God, to live with God, is to give him our allegiance, our obedience, and our affection because he's good, because he's made us his own, because our only hope in life and in death is that we belong to our faithful savior, Jesus Christ, not our materialistic God called consumerism, not our atomized individualistic God of self, but to our faithful savior, Jesus Christ. That is the gospel and that is the heart of the first commandment. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your commitment to us, even though we, our hearts wander and they're prone to wander. And we ask that, I ask that you would take anything that uh, was of help and conviction from this morning and that you would um, massage that truth into our hearts and that you would call us to freedom again and that we would see you as beautiful and not just uh, uh, a prohibition, but we would see us saying no to everything else, but us saying yes to life and freedom and joy. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.